I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now then, welcome along to the Huddle Breakdown. We're finally into the proper season and the games are coming quick and fast. We're going to be looking at the Hearts defeat at the weekend in the opening game of the season. The double signing announced by Celtic yesterday as Joe Hart and James McCarthy joined the club and the Europa League action this week against Czechside Jablonic. Alan Morrison is with me as always. Alan, how are you getting on? Yeah, good, thanks. Ender. And Jerko James as well. James, how are you? Um, tremendous. Thank you. Tremendous. Well, yeah. I, I don't think there was too many Celtic fans that were tremendous at the weekend as they suffered an opening day defeat to Hearts as Hearts returned to the Premier Division for well, the first. Let me explain. It's totally selfish and personal. So I got a night away with my wife Monday night. So, you know, we have teenagers. And as Alan will tell you, when you get to a certain point with a marriage, when you get a nice night away at a hotel, let's just say it was a good night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is already too. <laughs> Can we restart? <laughs> I'd like to uh, I can't, formally I can't unhear form- that. I'd, I'd like to formally apologize to our listeners and to anybody <laughs> well, that, who has, that was has G-rated. No, that was G-rated. Come on. <laughs> Right. Well, we'll we'll start with the Hearts defeat. I don't know don't know which I was which I'm more upset by that joke or the the Hearts defeat on the opening day of the season. Two one to Hearts. Gary McKay Stevens with the opener and Anthony Ralston with the equalizer and John Scooter Sutter rather with the 89th minute winner for Hearts. Who wants to start this? Who who wants to dig their teeth into this? I I, I think I was worried going into this game. I think I mentioned it. I wasn't sure if I said it on air. If I was worried about. Hearts and the physicality that they would bring and what that might cause in terms of issues for Celtic. So, Alan, do you want to start off with the the Hearts defeat and what what your thoughts are on the game? Yeah, I mean, I was more worried about the reaction if we didn't win, which you know, guess what? Uh, which will become a theme, I think. Um, you know, this is such so clearly a team that's a work in progress, and it was painfully obvious uh, during the game. Um, you know, sat there watching it pretty uncomfortably, I'll be honest with you. Even though if you look at the kind of end end result, you know, you look at 600-odd passes to 170, 70% possession. I don't know where FOTMOB and these others get some of the XG from, but I add it as like 1.97 to Celtic and 1.1 to Hearts. Um, I think a couple of crosses into the box 
by Hearts were counted as shots, which is a bit bizarre. Um, you know, again, just going through all the you know possessions in the box, thirty-two to nineteen, blah blah blah. We've been here so many times. You go through all these stats, and you start thinking, well, this is a game that Celtic should have won, really, <laughs> by by any measure. And um, you know, but but we didn't. And familiar failings um, in some in some respects, uh, even though again the system and the style of play was was glimpses. I would I would call it kind of angible with the breaks on. Um, that may have been to do with not trying to implement too much change all at once, or it might be to do with off the back of extra time European game on the Thursday. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, the sort of the, the pressing element was certainly largely absent. Actually, that may have been de- that may have been deliberate. I'm, well, I'm thinking it had to be deliberate because it really wasn't a feature of how Celtic played. But then, on the other hand, Hearts were so quick to turn the ball over and give it back to Celtic. In, in any case, um, and 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 you know, the start. Guess what? I mean, this you know, where this is where we've been. Yeah, and we you know we can't complain. I guess in winning. You know, twelve trophies in four years is probably a fair bit of variance that's gone Celtic's way. So, guess what? You've got a new centre back, and within eight minutes, that that system is put under stress, and it coughs up a goal. Two tackles are won with the ball ricocheting to Hearts players. But the problem, actually, uh, was the fact that there wasn't sufficient cover in the Celtic defence. Um, and if you look at players like, you know, I, I mean, I, when the balls originally turned over to Hearts, McGregor's is actually pressing. And is the furthest Celtic player forward. He doesn't make it back. Turnbull doesn't make it back. Abada doesn't make it back. And so you've got the defence floundering around in four v four as the ball's put in, and, and and only then are one of the players kind of uh, on the way back. So I think that's a, a system failure. That's a just not learning field position, reacting to the count to the counter press. Um, obviously, you know, Starfelt eight minutes into a team, he probably doesn't even know people's names. He's kind of, you know, made a slight misjudgment, and then the inevitable ricochets that end up with a ball in front of the goal for the opposition. So that's a terrible start. Uh, but it, but it's probably, you know, it's probably similar to goals that were considered last season because of um, systemic failures as well. Yeah, and then obviously, the, obviously, the, sorry, end of I was just going to say it reminded me of the Rangers goal that took a couple of different bounces and ended up at the far side of the six-yard box. you remember that one? And it ended up going being a free header for, um, I can't remember who scored the goal, but it was one of the, one of the first yeah, goals in. Morales, I think, yeah, 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 I, uh, yeah. I, I actually took a screenshot of it. I, I didn't share it on Twitter, but it was to Alan's point, um, at the point when Starfelt dove back in at Boyce, uh, I have the screenshot. There are six Hearts players uh, right at yeah. or inside the box, and we only have three players in the box. Yeah, when, and, two, when the ball- and, two, and two of them are uh, right next to each other, diving in on boys. So that basically you had um, one, two, three, four, five versus one off the ball. Yeah, when the ball is actually lost, the initial Celtic lose possession, which is in Hearts half and McGregor's pressing. Um, they've got two players on the right back. And and those and, and they're four v four across the back with the overload on the on the on the left hand side. I don't on their left. I don't know if that was by design, but that's a, a common feature of how to sort of get around Ange Ball. And of course, it transpired that the the goal came from that that left that left wing position for them. So that so that was like almost an inevitable start. And of course, it had to result in a, in a goal. But after that, you know, uh, again, Celtic took took pretty much control of the game, and and they did create chances. I mean, they they had you know whatever it was, 19 shots. As I say, the XG was nearly two. 
it's not as if we're struggling to create chances, but we're obviously we're not taking them. Um, I think there's a lot of um, systemic orientation needed and practice, dare I say, and time. You know, the fact that um, Edouard didn't have a single touch in the box in the second half, you know, you're not getting your striker on the ball in dangerous positions is, is clearly a worry. I don't want to pick on him. He actually, of all the players, he, he had the highest kind of expected scoring contribution uh, uh, overall. Um, and actually, after the calamity of that opening goal, so I thought Starfelt played really well. I think yeah. it was a classic game for the for those who remember the highlights and don't pay attention to the other 89 and a half minutes. Because, you know, he had a couple of shaky moments, Starfelt. He, he looked a bit clumsy on the ball a couple of times and there was that dodgy pass back. And then there was the goal. And that's generally what people will remember. But the other, eight, as I say, other 89 and a half minutes were... You know, he he was on the ball a lot. Whether again, whether that was by design or not, I don't know. But he was the one. He completed over a hundred hundred passes, hundred and ten passes, of which he completed ninety eight percent of them. He didn't try and do anything with it, particularly outlandish. You know, he broke the line with about with actually fourteen passes, uh, bit on the sixteen. Celtic did get stuck with the centre backs on the ball a lot, which again I suspect is, is something which is ha- you know used to happen under Dial a lot. Um, and is, is generally, you know, indicative of a team. With, they played a kind of medium block, three four three, quite narrow. And then, uh, you know, Celtic were, were struggling to then, you know, break those break those lines. But back back to Starfell. Other than that, other than that, you know, he won a good. He won more challenges ten than any other player by by four. Um, you know, he, he also had you know, a good number of recoveries, a good number of kind of clearances. He was he was defensively active. He won the ball back in his own third three times. He had the most possessions, one back six of any other player. He didn't actually lose possession in his own half. The, you know, the, the, the missed tackle, I wouldn't count as a lost possession because he, he never had possession. Um, and he even had a shot on target, a header on target into the bottom corner in the last, the last seconds. So he was actually... He was actually when I weighed it all up, he was my my uh, boy of the match, Starfelt, uh, uh, because of that. So, which probably is going to surprise people, <laughs> but mm. uh, yeah, I, I felt I felt you actually he looked really composed most of the time, and he looked strong and quick. And, or, and uh, if I use the word organized, I, I, what I mean by that is his decisions and his body shape were, were in tune, <laughs> and he looks like he looked composed. I suppose is what I'm saying. Yeah. James, do you want to come in on it? Well, I, I was. Um gratified in a, in a way, meaning that one of the exercises I've started doing, um, in recent months is, um, uh, doing kind of a profile data, um, analysis with, uh, prospective signings, meaning ones that seem like they're going to maybe be serious. And then with people that are actually signed. So I did that with Starfelt and Nevada. And, um, I have some gratification because the analysis that I put together and how I was thinking about them without having seen them with any substance, you know, I didn't really look at them in video. Um, the way they're playing has translated significantly based off of their, the, the data profiles that I had put together. So for example, Starfelt, you know, uh, I, I, as I called him, he's an animal in the tackle. I mean, that was reflected in his data profile, very efficient in the tackle. Um, and to what Alan's, 
uh, stats from game, I think, indicated that. Um, but that his passing is kind of vanilla. You know, he's not someone who's going to create from the back. He's not going to be a deep line playmaker. Very safe, very efficient. And that was, and it was, you say, ninety eight percent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So one hundred and ten passes. Yeah. So, so you know that there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I think that the question becomes one of fit. Then, meaning that he's not fast. I think we, and that was another thing. I his data profile didn't suggest that he had, um, you know, you wouldn't consider him a pacey uh, center back well, like an higher. Sorry. Um, uh, sorry, James, both, yeah. both, I think both, or certainly Boyce, or certainly Ginelli and Boyce tried to take him for pace and got nowhere near. Yeah. Well, I, I think he's, he's smart. I mean, he, he's, I think he's positionally smart and he, he, that translates into uh, playing, as I say, he plays faster than he is. Hmm. Um, so, so I, I think, and the reason why I say that is that when when we're going to be playing a high line um, with two center backs um, fairly wide, if those two center backs are Starfelt and Julian, um, you're, you're not going to get a ton of line breaking passes and you're not going to have huge recovery pace. Now, both of them are pretty good positionally, but again, it's back to this issue of when things go wrong, if there's a bad bounce that occurs and you just need flat out speed to cover up for something, uh, and I've done some threads on that today in multiple contexts, you know, I don't think you're going to get it there. Whereas a guy like Iyer, you know, just flat out, if something went wrong, Iyer could close down a guy from five yards behind and kind of cover up a mistake. I'm not sure Starfeld has that kind of pace. And again, it's no harm. It's just a profile issue. Um, And, and uh, I think, you know, Ginelli, not a great player, but the guy's fast. You know what I mean? So how does that translate? Well, again, you talk about levels. Add Ginelli's pace to somebody who actually has a better technical skill. Who do you turn into? Well, like a Ryan Kent type, you know, a guy who's going to present more challenges. And that that's kind of what I always think about is at a European level, how does that kind of center back pairing fit, fit together? Against heart, hearts, you know, you get away with certain things that you're not going to get away with. Um, against uh, higher quality opposition, so I, you know, I, I, I thought um, Starfelt was. It's always good to know. I mean, I, I thought he was a good player based off of the profile I built. Uh, it's a matter of fit within the system. I think he can fit in the system. It's a question of who you pair him with, and he seems extremely good in certain ways. Um, so that I think that's good news. Yeah, there's a couple of refereeing issues that I don't want to delve too deeply into but because not. I mean I mean they, they happened, they occurred, they the result happened, they're not gonna change. So, you know, you have the tackle on McGregor and you have the offside goal that wasn't offside. I mean none of th- those decisions are final. Those decisions happened. Celtic lost the game. So I, I don't want to delve too deep into into that conversation, but it's it's worth referencing the fact that, you know, some things did go against Celtic in this game as well. In terms of the second hearts goal <laughs> I mean, another set piece. It's it just it just keeps happening. It, I don't really understand it at this point. How, if this is your key weakness, and it has been for the last year and a half, how you can't identify someone who can fix this? Because, I mean, it just whatever about our, our squad size, we have to be somehow be able to limit this. And ultimately, it came down to a keeper error. I would say Scott Bain was probably most at fault for this for his positioning, but. Again, the ball has to come in somewhere. The defenders need to deal with that. 
yeah, it, it, there's nothing positive to say about any of it. <laughs> um, you know, even start well, starting from you know, Soro, you know, hooked his his foot round the front of the player to win the ball and was penalised. Is <laughs> you don't I don't even want to talk about refereeing decisions, but um, that was another soft, a pretty soft one to start with. But um, having said that, you know, in terms of defending it, you know, you've got three players in the middle of the goal, centre of the goal, who are not marked in any shape or form. You were playing a, quite an exaggerated high line, which again is probably where they're trying to get to from, from a, a t- tactical perspective. But are we trained enough in it? Obviously not, because no one was picked up <laughs> on the run-in and Bain's positioning just was completely unnatural. It was just completely all over the place. You know, we, as soon as the players run in, um, you know, he should be he should be backing off. And he, he ended up... The, the, I mean, the tell is the fact that the, goal, the ball went into the centre of the goal. I mean, that, that's crazy, right? <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's a header for a start. Uh, therefore, it's not that powerful um, from quite a distance out, actually, near the penalty spot, I think. So um, clearly that, that that gives away the fact that goalkeeper's in the wrong position. You know, if he gets beat with a bullet header into the top corner, you sort of think, fair enough. But for the ball to loop into the into the middle of the goal, it, you know, is 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 is, is inexcusable. So um, yeah, nothing. There was nothing good about it at all. Nothing. I can, yeah, it's, it's complete failure. Yeah, I, being, I, sorry, go, James. I, the only thing I would add is it, it's always uh, it, it's hard to know in these kind of situations because I, I think of them as kind of like set plays, you know, because you, you're going to have theoretically anyway. I mean, God, God help us if this isn't the case, but you would think that each player has some sense of what their responsibility is on set pieces. So there's going to be some organization. People are going to have specific jobs that they know, you know, whether I'm man marking, I'm zonal marking, what's my job, what does that mean? Uh, so it's very easy to uh, pick out specific people and blame them for what they did. But, you know, Brendan Rogers was uh, famous for saying this uh, early on in his tenure, which is, you know, particularly with like his keepers, it's like you pass the ball to where someone's supposed to be. And if they're not there, you're not getting in trouble the person who was supposed to be there and isn't is going to get in trouble, right? So it's hard to uh, attribute who, who's at fault in a coverage situation where so many guys are wide open. Um, you know, it seems to me Biton was at fault, but again, was he is he instructed to yeah. not attack the ball proactively and he's expecting someone behind him to do that? Yeah, is, he, couldn't, is, he couldn't pick up three players either, could he? <laughs> Well, right, right. Or, or what, what's Bain's instructions? I mean, he looked like he was kind of half-ass in between. So to me, he does look like the one that probably was at fault the most just because he, he didn't either commit or come back. I mean, he was stuck in no man's land as I kind of characterized it. So, um, but yeah, it, it's, it, 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 and I, I actually did a little bit of a set piece um, breakdown last week using uh, stats bomb data and um, it actually got worse after Lennon left. <laughs> uh, the various metrics. So, I you know I don't know who knows what's going on, and and it, and, it, and it's Alan documented before. This was not a new problem. This it wasn't as severe the prior season, but in the nineteen twenty season when we had a lot of things going better and some things objectively really well, set piece defending was not one of them. Um, in fact, I think I think Forster uh, surrendered twice the expected goals on set pieces in 1920. Uh, so it wasn't a huge absolute number, 
but the effective and you know the effectiveness of defending and preventing goals relative to the quality of chances being created was was poor um so it's not even height i mean you know you, you looked at their team and you thought three cent be three big center backs they brought on herring they brought on the big monster guy up front for the last sort of 50 minutes a massive height but we only had bit on I can only think that's the only reason Bitton played is because he's the only one that's over six foot. <laughs> um, but but having said that, Celtic created as many headed chances from crosses into the box during the game as, as Harris did. And actually, their corners and free kicks up to, other up to that moment, other than a couple of you know low probability headers from a corner, and we had the same. It was kind of fifty fifty in that regard, yep. um, which just goes to show you that you know height isn't everything. But um, yeah. So it wasn't well, it, that. It's, 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 it's organization. It's, it comes down to organization. Well, and some of these things have a spiraling effect. I mean, Alan mentioned the, uh, you know, com- coming out of a, a, a European game midweek where they played, some of the guys played 120 minutes. Um, I think it's plausible that some mental fatigue sets in <laughs> towards the uh, injury time of a game that Saturday where some of those guys, you know, are into huge amounts of minutes and, and exertion. So mental fatigue often follows physical fatigue. Uh, and maybe they just switched off some of them. Um, and that's just, you know, that's a risk that's going to happen occasionally. It's often sort of like first world problems in that dominant teams who are dominant in possession, like Celtic have been in the last 10 years at least. Um, often the teams who are playing them, target set pieces and are much better organized going forward and you know perhaps Celtic are working harder elsewhere on the areas that are they are more in control like possession like the press like the counter press um attacking wise but defensively they need to do something in my opinion one man that might help this and I'm going to play the devil's advocate a little bit here is Joe Hart who has signed for Celtic he was announced yesterday along with James McCarthy. We'll talk about James McCarthy a little bit more in depth than Joe Hart because I think we, we've done Joe Hart quite a bit last week as well. A comment is coming in from Thomas Hanlon here. He says that a friend of mine who follows Man City rates Hart as a very good goalkeeper, excellent communicator. Is the latter an example of an intangible quality that is sometimes overlooked by analytics? This is where I want to focus on a little bit here with Joe Hart because I think we've we've touched on the you know what what he's lacking in terms of uh, footballing ability and why he was eventually sold by Man City. He is an experienced goalkeeper who's played at an extremely high level. Shot stopping is a strength of his, but I would argue that that set piece doesn't go in if Joe Hart's in nets because he is communicating with his defence that are, there are three free Hart's men in the middle of the box. Discuss. <laughs> So I think I think there's been a lot of debate, and actually, the, since the last couple of days with McCarthy and Hart signing, there's been a, an interesting, almost sort of mini standoff between the data guys and the non-data guys around these signings, and it's been interesting. I've been fascinated, fascinated to follow it. Tried to keep it, um, you know, cordial. <laughs> um, and but actually, I've 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 shifted my position on on this as as I've just tried to absorb the different perspectives really. And, and what I've what I think is around, especially the goalkeeping situation, is for, for number one for sure. Um, th- th- there is something to be said when you're as experienced as Joe Hart and and has got I've got have got some clear attributes of some of these intangibles that we go on about 
those things do matter to an extent. How much of an extent is really what what we generally sort of argue over. Um, but what is also I've kind of learned is there's obviously people have been bombarding us with stats about heart at Burnley and heart at Tottenham and heart at Man City and blah blah blah. And it's like I do wonder how much goalkeeping data tells you about that goalkeeper versus the style of the team and the way that the goalkeeper has been asked to play. Now you might argue that you know pure pure shot saved and pure goals conceded against average or uh, you know how many goals have they conceded versus the expected goals model type of thing you'd think should be pretty pretty uniform metric to judge someone by and and, and I think that's absolutely fair but I, I do wonder if comparing you know Hart's data for Burnley versus Bain's data for Celtic is really a very good Ex, a very, you know, I, I wonder what the, what the value of that exercise is. What I would like to see, and, and this is maybe some homework for James, is to compare Forster in the EPL and Hart in the EPL, um, and see how that stacks up. Because remember, you know, I keep coming back to we you know we, we love Fraser Forster, and I love Fraser Forster, um, and we all remember his heroics, especially the season before. But he was third choice at Southampton. Mm. He, you know, he did get in the England squad at one point, but he never got near replacing Joe Hart in the England team. And, you know, I, I, and, and yet for Celtic, he's, he's obviously fondly remembered and he produced great performances. Um, I do wonder, therefore, you know, will Hart bring something very similar? Will will Because Joe Hart, if you think about it, played for years for Manchester City as the first choice. He played in a possession-dominant team uh, and was comfortable in that role. You know, for England, he played 75 games. Now, as you're probably aware... For European and World Cup qualification, England never get England's qualifying group generally consists of a bunch of Mediterranean islands. They rarely play anybody of any substance until they get to the finals of any German. Hart is used to playing in that in those types of games that, that Celtic kinda of get playing again in a dominant team. So th- those sort of things I think are are worth bringing into the mix as as well, I would say. Um and in terms of his actual performance, like I say if he's playing, you know, for Burnley in the in the EPL and is under a lot of pressure, and some of those weaknesses around, for example, you know, not saving that many shots on the left hand side are going to get they're going to get stressed on a number of occasions. Playing for Celtic, maybe not so much, maybe not that often. Did Foster have many of the same weaknesses that really didn't get amplified playing for Celtic? You know, and that big game mentality we talk about, which is a bit of an intangible, but we can see it mm. in the data that Forster produced in those games. You know, Hart, you would expect, has had that in his career. So I'm not as I'm not as swayed by past performance data for the likes of Burnley, and also the whole thing about Man City and Guardiola getting rid of him because he couldn't play out from the back. That you got to you got to that's too sim- way way too simplistic. Guardiola wants the best goalkeeper in the world on all the attributes that Guardiola wants in a goalkeeper. And he will demand that and he will be given the resources to get it. The fact that you don't meet that standard doesn't say you're a bad goalkeeper. And in fact, you know, other stats suggest that Hart's actually pretty decent with his feet. And remember, Gordon Gordon was challenged by uh, Rodgers to play out from the back. And Gordon adapted. I wrote an article on this on on the Celtic by Number site. You can read it. And he adjusted his name his game sufficiently to be okay in playing out from the back. Gordon was never going to be 
you know, um, Franco Baresi mm. and a goalkeeper at the same time, right? But he was good enough. So all Joe Hart needs to do is be good enough so that the, the, the range of attributes he needs to be a Celtic goalkeeper are adding more value than what the current incumbents are. And then Celtic have won a, have won a watch, essentially. Because yeah. this guy, this guy, right, wants to play football. And you cannot say he hasn't shown incredible positive attitude since being ditched by Man City. He went to Italy for a year to play for a mid-table team, right? He didn't need to do that. He could have sat on the bench and picked up a massive wage. He put himself out there, and he didn't do very well, and he, and he put himself under pressure. You know, he, he went to Burnley. Why, you know, you go from Man City. People will look at, question, you, question you for doing that. He, you know, he's done that. He's, he's, he's reputedly on 15 grand a week. You know, so he's, he's not actually, he's the same, same as Barca. So he's not actually even that expensive a punt. So, so I think in the round, I'm very open to this. I'm willing to yeah. see how it plays out. Yeah, my, my opinion has been swayed over the last week or so. And I think the mental attributes, again, it's, it's hard to measure these things. You can't, you know, you can't put a number on them. So it's hard to, to judge them. But I think from watching Bain and watching Barca struggle over the last two weeks, especially, um, the concentration levels that is required for this role, I don't think they have them. And I think Joe Hart does have them because he has proven in, in past games that, or in Man City days, for example, as um, as that example. And hardworking, I remember we spoke on Off the Ball uh, to Richard Dunn, who was at Man City for years, seeing, seeing Joe Hart uh, come through the academy. And he said this kid was, he was the hardest worker that he's ever seen. And I know that's a little bit cliched when you see top players, easy to say it. But he said that Joe Hart was literally there all the time pushing to get that first team spot. And he got it at 17. So he has that leadership quality and he is loud enough to guide teams through games. For example, the defense, which is really young. And I'll, I'll use an example from my own playing days. I know I'm, I'm con- I, I put a, a heavy, heavy asterisk on this that it's not to the extent that these guys are playing. But I was playing for a new team last week they had a 34-year-old guy who had played at a high level, um, a much higher level than the team that he's currently playing for, playing centre-back. I was playing centre-mid. And he talked me through the entire game. Every single move that I was making, he was talking to me, telling me, move five yards left, move five yards right. Joe Hart can do that to Nier Beaton. Joe Hart can do that to uh, Stephen Wells. He can guide them through the set pieces, for example. If they're in the wrong places, he will tell them, to get into the right places, so that's what I think he brings. James, are you are you swayed by the intangibles even a little bit? Um, I wouldn't say swayed because I I I, I already consider them. Um, but what I try to do is look at an ensemble of performance data, and then ask questions. So let me ask a question of the audience and and you two which is um, with everything that we know about Forster, um, what we think we know about Barkas, which he's not a great shot stopper. I think that's an objectively true statement. Um, why is it that in Barkas's starts last season, when everyone thinks he was a bad keeper, I shouldn't say everyone, vast majority of people think he performed poorly, Celtic conceded on average 0.45 goals in his games in, in ju- you know, let's say 15 games that he started. 
Uh, he had eight out of 15 games were clean sheets. So that's 0.45 goals conceded. I'm not talking about XG. I'm not talking about mm-hmm. anything other yeah. than just goals conceded. I, and he had, I, hold on, let me finish. Over, over 50% of his games were clean sheets. Fraser Forster, and that was playing behind a defense, which we know, and a midfield, which was an absolute travesty last season. Then the season before, Forster conceded. Now, these, these exclude penalties and own goals. Okay. So that's, 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 let, let me preface it with that. Forster conceded 0.51 goals per game in 29 games total um, and had 14 out of, I'm sorry, it was 28 starts, 14 out of 28 starts. He had clean sheets. Okay. So if we know that Barkas was or is an inferior shot stopper to Forster, which I tend to agree, but I also have performance data that shows that he was dramatically better at commanding his box than Forster. Um, where are the other gaps? Where are the intangibles? If I'm going to try and assess intangibles, how was he organizing his defense? I don't know. I, I'm not on the field. Um, what I do know is that in open play, when that you would think that's a big deal, he did a better job than Forster in preventing goals. And that was with two of those 15 games against Rangers. So this is not some biased sample where he was only playing against Ross County. Yeah, okay. I, I, I would argue because he played the first 10 games of the season last year before the collapse. The Rangers right. game was the first collapse. And as soon as that happened, granted, he didn't get a return to consistent play, which I do argue is definitely giving him a little bit of favor there. His confidence was shot. He was gone. Hasn't well, that, that, that's possible. But when he did reenter in December, when he had a functioning midfield in front of him, a good number of his clean sheets were in that period up until the Ranger, the second Rangers game. Right. So that's possible. I'm not, I, again, I'm not discounting the fact that intangibles are part of this. What I'm saying is it, there, there should be a holistic assessment of available tools and information to try and assess what they are. Okay. And I do not take it face value when people have a reputation Okay, because people are biased. Everyone's biased. I'm biased. You're biased. Everyone that likes Joe Hart that played with him is not going to say, this guy was the worst leader I've ever played with. He might be a genuinely nice guy. He may be a great leader, right? But styles of leadership are different. Not everyone's a voice, a, a, a vocal leader, and that that's effective. The chemistry within a team is variable. Some teams have a bunch of uh, strong type A personalities and the leadership is diffused. Others have a more single polar like we you know, did with Brown for many years. We have one personality that's extremely dominant. Okay. Some of those work. Some of them don't. The, these kind of chemistry issues are very complicated. And the idea that we in the outside can say that Joe Hart is going to be the leader that's going to organize the defense there's so many different variables that go enter into this um, that I think that part of it is on the margin. And secondly, we have no way of really having a good understanding of how the dynamics are going to work within the context of the team, the culture of the team, the other personalities in the team. Maybe the insiders do. Maybe, you know, that, that very plausibly could be something that factored into this decision. Where I get skeptical is that he seemed to have been 
a preferred candidate last summer and a certain someone seemed to defer to the recruitment department. <laughs> and there seems to have been a dynamic internally at Celtic that's been unfolding ever since then. And, and we're seeing up that this is not happening in a vacuum. This is happening within the context of overall decision-making to me that provides important context. And mm-hmm. so I hope he's good. I hope all the analysis I've done is wrong. I'm a lot more skeptical about his ability to play a sweeper keeper role, not because I don't, I think he's bad on the ball, but because I think the demands in an and system are so different than normal that you have to be good on the ball in his system because that, that's what we saw in his performances with his keepers in Japan. There's it, it's a, it's a different animal that we're, it's not a Roger system. It's not even a pep system. Um, it's a totally different animal than what he's looking for his keepers to do. And I'm skeptical. I hope he proves me wrong. And, well, and I, back, back to the one last thing I'll say is his shot stopping at Burnley is really his only period in, in, since 1516, where he did post pretty good saves versus um, uh, post shot XG. But as out to Alan's point, that was with facing almost six shots a game. So you, you had said you think he'll be his concentration levels will be better. Well, that's not in the data in the in the in the times when he was playing at Torino or at uh, at, uh, at uh, Man City under Pellegrini when he was facing two to three shots a game, that happens to be when his performance levels were not as good. So maybe he's actually a volume guy where he needs the, the bean pepper to be in the game. I, I don't know. I, I, all I can do is take some of these supposed narratives of qualitative intangibles and then say, okay, what does the data look like, the measurables, and does it make sense? And if it doesn't, what could be the answer as to why it doesn't? And I think Alan puts forth some reasonable thesis as to why some of them may not. When I take the overall pattern, no director of football, no head scout. He was recruited last summer. He could be Fraser Forster's twin cousin. You know, uh, to me, I, I doubt that there was a sophisticated process that resulted in this decision doesn't mean it won't work i hope it does but i'm skeptical yeah well i think i think all of us want him to work regardless i uh, you know i'm I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here because i mean last week i did say that you know it's absolutely crazy that joe hart is the the guy that they've they've come to at this point in time let's move on to james mccarthy the irish international 30 years old signs on a four-year deal a four-year deal for a 30-year-old he's going to be 30 he's going to be 31 in a couple of months he has he he has been injured for 29 of those 31 years and james mccarthy listen as an irish fan as somebody who's followed james mccarthy's career both internationally and at club level quite deeply i think he's a good player i think he's a solid midfielder not the most talented on the ball but will be a very good player to have if we have him that is the key point if James McCarthy is fit, he will be a good player in the Scottish League. But I doubt how often we're going to have him fit. In terms of Irish Republic uh, caps, he has missed pretty much all of them. Either the week before he pulled a groin or he picked up a niggle. Um, He's missed pretty much every Irish camp for the last two years. He has been in and out of the Crystal Palace. He, he got a good run with Crystal Palace there last season, but 
with Everton after that hor- horrific in- injury he picked up, he just hasn't been, you know, sticking as a regular starter for any team. So caveat is that James McCarthy, in my opinion, is going to be good if we have him. Alan, what's your thoughts on him? Have you done any any work on looking into him? What you what do you think he's going to bring to the team? Or yeah, I, I mean it's difficult because again, there's just very little data to work off of uh, in recent times. The, the, I mean, the horrendous injury he had took took well, a, a year out and then rehab, nearly you know a year, a year and a half out, out, out in his prime in his prime years, really, sort of twenty seven, twenty eight type of age, um, and then he went to Crystal Palace. For, for a small fee. You know, when Everton picked him up from Wigan and they paid, I think, 13 million for, for him, you know, there, there was a kind of, what's probably now a hoary old saying that, you know, 75% of the earth is covered by water and the rest is covered by James McCarthy. You know, it's, just, <laughs> it's ho, ho, ho. Um, and, 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 you know, he was he was a, a player that basically covered every bait of grass, mainly in a defensive, uh, defensive realm. And, but but you know and that's and that's that, what 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 relevance does that have in 2021 when he's nearly 31 years old and and really has only played hasn't played a meaningful season of minutes size in over 2000 minutes for 5 years uh what does that actually mean and if you look at that season actually that that 15 16 season he actually benchmarks pretty well um and he benchmarks as a fairly limited in scope central midfielder off the type that Celtic don't have. So, uh, you know, if you want to sort of think, is this something that Celtic have? No. Somebody who is strong in the tackle, uh, who is is good anticipation-wise in terms of interceptions, blocking opposition uh, creativity, decent range of passing, technically a good player in terms of touch, ability to pass the ball short and long, not necessarily creative passing, just really recycling. Um, you know, he actually profiled pretty well in that in that season. If you look at his stats for Crystal Palace, where he played around seventeen hundred minutes for Palace in the nineteen twenty season, I know it said thirty three appearances, but really it's not thirty three. Lots of ninety minutes. It's probably half of that. Um, those same numbers go down quite considerably in terms of where he would rank uh, within the Premier League. So that's a concern. But I, you know, I, I did some qualitative analysis as well and looked at you know the Everton fans boards and the Palace fans boards to see what the sort of sentiment was around McCarthy and as recently as January last year so 18 months ago now Crystal Palace went to Manchester City and McCarthy's role was to mark Kevin De Bruyne and apparently he was never more than five yards from him and, and kept him absolutely quiet that was 18 months ago you know that that kind of defensive discipline um, is something which you know potentially he may still have. The the view was at Palace was that you know under Roy Hodgson, Palace have got essentially six defensive midfielders in the squad, <laughs> and uh, and actually where McCarthy has demonstrated he can play well, and this is all about to James' point about systems and what works in the context of who you're playing with, is if you put McCarthy with talented, skillful players to give the ball five yards to, and he's there to cover the holes and the gaps and to do a lot of the dirty work for the likes of a of a McGregor, that's when he's been pretty outstanding for, for Everton. Didn't happen so much at Palace because he wasn't surrounded by those type of players. He was surrounded by similar players 
Um, so, you know, uh, what have I concluded from all that? I, I, I still have got, I'm, 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 I am skeptical about heart, as James said. I'm choosing to be optimistic, but I'm skeptical. Um, and I'm very skeptical about McCarthy because just through lack of evidence that the player that has been is still the player that, that we're getting. And, and the fragility, potentially fragility of, you know, because actually he's not had a bad injury since his really terrible fibia and tibia fracture. He had another hamstring injury in 1920 for Palace, but it, it didn't keep him out for that long. And hamstring injuries were something which had hitherto, um, you know, blighted him. He hasn't actually been out injured. It's more the case that he just wasn't first pick. So, yes, he's an absolutely solid you know, Premier League level, uh, you know, defensive midfielder. No, Celtic don't have anything like his style of player in the squad. But, you know, can he stay fit? Can he still play at the level that the data suggests, you know, he he, he could have done, but that was many years ago. I don't know. If this was 2015, then Celtic probably would have forked out probably over 50 million for these two players. So, that I mean, they're both really good players in their day. I just question... What, how much of that player is still there with with James McCarthy? It it seems to be, you know, Ireland also have a, a Jeff Hendrick. James, I'm not sure how familiar you are with him, but he plays for, he plays for Burnley as well, and um, he had an amazing Euro 2012. And ever since that, it was Jeff Hendrick is excellent. And then every single year it was okay. Why isn't Jeff Hendrick playing to the same level that he played at that Euros? Oh, if if the Jeff Hendrick that played at the Euros turns up this year, will be brilliant. Never happened. It never happened. Right. So I I just worry that James McCarthy, who I, I've no doubt is a really good player and was a really good Premier League player, I've I've just worried that we'll be saying if if he brings those performances that he brought in 2015, he'll be excellent. But you can't just take that bargain. That that sort of uh, that leap of faith with this. Yeah, so I, I I am um I'm actually more um optimistic on the injury front if Celtic actually use something that they bought recently and they've uh implemented it and start using it with um uh preventing injuries and 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 it's um specifically geared towards soft tissue injuries like hamstrings. So theoretically, um they should be able to keep him fit if they actually listen to what they're going to get. Um, that doesn't mean they will. And it, this comes back to an inherent issue. So if I look at um, Salzburg, for example, who's a club that has been on the forefront and deploying this kind of tool, they have a midfielder, Janozovic, who I actually have been familiar with for several years now because I used him as a benchmark for Brown as Brown was um, kind of entering his, his uh, decline years. And they've basically played Janozovic, and he plays for them in the Champions League, right? So this guy, he's going to be 34 in a couple of months. Uh, so from his age 31 through 33 seasons, he played for Salzburg against the Liverpools, right? They didn't, you know, in the amount of games that he, when they deployed him, they were using him against the better competition. But he basically played about 30 games a season. He wasn't playing 55, 60 games a season. So um, I think a question, a, a, a logical question to extrapolate from that is that if you're going to manage the fitness of a midfielder who's this age profile, does it mean they're going to be able to play 
50 games a year. And if they're not, you know, if you get uh, machine learning software that tells you if you play this guy too much now, 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 and now, you might get injured, and the guy's got a history of hamstring problems, and you don't listen to it, <laughs> uh, you don't rest him when he should, and you don't deploy him intelligently, right? Wow. So, again, I think if done smartly, this could be a good signing relative to the injury risk. I actually think there's an opportunity here for a club of Celtics profile to get better players who have injury problems and deploy them smartly to get more value out of them. Rangers did it with Roof last season, right? And he still had some calf issues. Um, so, you know, it's not, it reduces risk. It doesn't eliminate. Um, so I, I think there's some opportunity there. My concerns are more so the fit with Angie's system, right? So everything that Alan said, I mean, you can think of McCarthy as basically closer to a Brown, right? I mean, to me, that's how I think of him conceptually. There's some nuances there. He's actually, I think, Alan, you know better even you. I mean, might be a little bit better than Brown in the tackle at this point, Um because he does look, I mean, he really ranks high. I'd actually put out a thread today. I mean, even the last two seasons when he was maybe not at his 100% best, he was right at the top of the Premier League in his efficiency. Yeah. I, in, I'd in say he, he's less of a headless chicken than Brian. Right, right. And that's a huge positive. So structurally, that's a positive. But I think the passing part of this is really important. So I I looked at um, people that have played under Ange's system in Japan and the orders of magnitude and difference in the passing efficiency is not small. So for example, you know, McCarthy, his accuracy rates, even going back to 15, 16 and things like progressive passes, forward passes, they're kind of in the 70% range. Um, and just guys playing that sitting defensive midfielder role closer to the mid eighties, high eighties, even 90% in those metrics. Um, so Sorry, yep. James, I just sorry to butt in. Just on that passing, when again from the fifteen sixteen season, which is when McCarthy played significant mm-hmm. minutes, he was ranked twentieth in the whole Premier League for pass. Yeah, that's just, just pass. flat passes, right? So yeah, this... yeah, yeah, just for pass completion, right? So, so, four four so, passes. That's, that's all players. That's all midfielders, forwards, defenders, etc. Right. So forward He's passes yeah. breaks out strictly just for passes that go forward. Because again, sure. as we saw, as we saw with Brown in the Champions League, he can have the best passing percentage yeah, because yeah, yeah. You're, you're dinking it between the, the center backs 50 times a game. Um, so I, I don't think he profiles as a guy it, to, to town's point. I mean, he, I don't, he's not going to be um, a deep line playmaker. That's not who he is. No. Um, so he's, he's going to need somebody near him to recycle the ball to that's going to do that job. So this comes back to system dynamics. Okay. We've already discussed that's not going to be Starfelt. Probably not going to be Julian. So who's left in the center back positions? You know, I, Alan and I have been reasonably optimistic on how much better Welsh has been getting in that regard. I don't see him as a playmaker. I think he's gone from eh to maybe functional in that regard, right? So now we're left with who? Well, we all know who that's going to be. Callum McGregor, right? So that gets back to this issue that we've talked about endlessly since we started this show, which is shackling McGregor into that deep lying role and whether or not you need two guys there doing that then. And what does that do to McGregor's ability to be an attacking eight getting forward? So there's that practical implication. 
And then when I look at it relative to what Ange has done in Japan, where he does not have that player in his midfield, both of his guys are functional passers, more, I would say, quick and pacey than MacArthur probably is. He's going to be 31, giving the guy a four-year deal to basically eat his decline curve, right? This is when he's going to get worse. This is the meat of it. It starts to accelerate between 31 and 32, and then you start falling off a cliff at 33, 34, as we saw with Brown. You know, so I don't understand the fit. I'm not saying he's going to be a bad player, but like Hart, like the other patterns that we've seen with recruitment, with an Irrigidi, with with a Shaw, right? This is why structure and having a coherent recruitment plan relative to the way the manager is actually going to play you know, are these the least bad options that Ange was given <laughs> relative to lists and saying, okay, pick from this, this, and this, because this is who we've recruited for Lennon 12 months ago. Who knows? All I'm saying is that they don't fit in my judgment. And when you're not optimizing, you create vulnerabilities. And I could see a scenario where Joe Hart is 35 yards from goal. McCarthy is playing that sitting role. McGregor's running forward because that's what McGregor's trying to do. And Ange, as we saw against Hearts, you know, McGregor's probably going to be doing that quite a bit. We lose possession. Starfelt, Julian, McCarthy, and Hart. Is that the four that you want playing a high line against anyone functional with any pace? That's my question. I don't know. From a system perspective, that frightens me <laughs> at a European level. Now, can you get away with that against Hearts? Can you get away with it against Ross County? Of course. Are, is it going to result in goals more so than you maybe want against those kind of teams like we saw with Hearts and Ginelli? Um, something just happens to go wrong, right? So I, I did a thread today about robustness. I mean, it, it's about robustness. If When things go wrong, is the system robust enough to handle it? And when the ball's turned over, when you get a bad bounce, you know, when you, when certain things happen. And I think, you know, I, I, wor- I worry that the mix here is going to result in a lack of robustness and that that lack of robustness will get exposed in increasing degrees against better competition. This is the Huddle Breakdown. You're listening to us on Spotify or iTunes, I presume. If you are, hit the subscribe button. If you're watching on YouTube, Drop a comment below. We'll try to get to some of them before we finish up. And subscribe to the channel as well. We're on to 800 at the minute. We're trying to get to at least 3,000, maybe 5,000 by the middle of the season. So hit subscribe and give the video a like if you're watching on YouTube. Neil Davidson is saying, have you no mercy? Won't even let me enjoy Hart and McCarthy signings for 24 hours. Well, Neil, <laughs> I'm sorry. But you said you do like the show. So, I mean, I mean, there's, there's plus and minus to it. Let's, let's finish off then really quickly with the Europa League fixture against Jablonic from Czech Republic or Czechia, I think they're now called. Uh, that happened overnight. I'm not really sure when it happened. But some context on them. They are ranked 162nd in the UEFA coefficient compared to Celtics 46th. Doesn't mean all that much, but it gives you a little bit of a idea of what level they're playing at. They're currently ninth in the Czech League, one win, one loss from the new season. They finished third last year against uh, behind Sparta and Slavia Prague, but there's no difference between those two. Who, who knows which one is which? Not even <laughs> Neil Lennon when he's playing against them. So this game against Jablonik, a lot of people scared of AZ Alkmaar in the next round if Celtic do get through, but I guess you have to get through this fixture first. 
given the last two games, what level are the confidence at? <laughs> well, can, I, can I ask a quick question? Is there, is there is there any resolution on all these this because I haven't been uh, on the on these... the Michelin situation? Yeah, yeah. What's... no. I, at the minute, no. Just we... as as it stands, we're recording this at four thirty on Wednesday. So the news is that Michelin played and or did or did not play an eligible player, Janino. It's still up in the air what's going to happen okay. if, if if he actually was. Um, if he actually was ineligible, is still questionable. So there's an excellent thread by the always excellent uh, Moravchik 67. On, I'm, I didn't see it. Okay, good. Yeah, which explains the uh, having looked at the UEFA regulations, explains what sounds like a very plausible scenario. The bottom line of which, and I won't bore you with all the different details, but please do check it out, is that um, they may in, in Brazil he may well have been banned for two days. The to get that ban extended worldwide, you have to go to FIFA and ask them. FIFA then made the judgment and then informed Michelin before the game yesterday, and he was then withdrawn from that game. The, the likelihood is that that was all kind of above board. Yeah, Michelin are losing 3 0 to PSV at the minute, so I mean, I'm not so okay. sure I want to play PSV. No, uh, I, so, I, that's why go ahead, Alan. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's, no, no, uh, Jablonic, Jablonic is the Europa League. Uh, yeah, this, listen, this anyway. listen. In the state that we're in, in terms of you know trying to adapt to to a very different style and the, and the state the squads in, every game is going to be an awkward game. You know, the ELO rating suggests that this team are ranked higher than every team bar the top two in Scotland. So you know, think of this as Hibs away, if you like. You know, would we be confident about Celtic winning Hibs away? No, so I didn't even ask. <laughs> you know, this and this is listen. This is a team that's going to be pretty awkward. They've, 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 in the last five seasons under the same coach, so there's continuity here. They've either finished third, fourth, or fifth for five seasons in a row. So there's some consistency there in terms of their own performances. You know, yes, they only play in a tiny stadium. The stadium holds six and a half thousand people. In the last league game, they had about two and a half thousand uh, people in there. Uh, but by the way, it is grass and the pitch is the same size as Celtic Park. So there's that. Um, you know, they don't have much of a pedigree in Europe. Um, they did beat Copenhagen about five years ago and only lost by one goal to Ajax. Finished bottom of their Europa League group in 18-19 but, and lost by a single goal home and away to Rennes. Um, but, the, you know, last season, they only lost one of the last 14 league games to finish third. And they were only five points behind Sparta Prague. Remember them? They actually beat them uh, in one game and lost in one game in the league. So, listen, this is going to be a really awkward tie. Um, in terms of, you know, tactics, they kind of they, they don't have a fixed system. It's kind of a 4-1-4-1. Sometimes it's a 4-4-2. Uh, this season it's been a 4-2-3-1, but the, the one constant seems to be to play uh, two number sixes. So they'll play two players quite deep, I think. Um, they did lose one of their top scorers to Slavia Prague. Prague but, you know, it, it seems that in the Czech League there's pretty much a merry-go-round of free transfers between the clubs at the end of most seasons. Um, they've got a guy up front, six foot two, again, Czech team, going to be big, going to be strong, going to be physical. Um, he's a bit of a late bloomer, managed 10 league goals plus in each of his last three seasons, never done it before. Uh, Dolzali. It looks like they're, they're most sort of unpredictable. Um, danger may be a guy called Jovovich on the left wing, kind of a Decent expected assists. He also presses well, wins nearly five duels in the final third per game and gets uh, possession in the box around about the same as James Forrest. So he could be a bit of a, a bit of a handful. Um, 
so the 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 what I've read up on central midfield could actually be their biggest weakness, which is Celtic's biggest strength. So that's take that as a positive. They could well have the thirty nine year old Thomas Hubschman, who some of you may remember from European Championships past. He's still going. He may well make an appearance. What I think is fascinating is uh, you know they they finished third in the league last season on an average of thirty two percent possession. You can just Beautiful. see yeah. you can just see the counter attacking mayhem that is going to ensue. This is a very efficient team. They score according to their XG and they score on you know they score very efficiently. Um last season I would say they, they overperformed defensively. They conceded um 1.9 just under a goal a game. Um their XG was uh, but their XG was 1.36 uh, goals a game. And guess what? In three games a season, that's flipped round. That's that's the XG gods for you. So maybe not as defensively strong as perhaps they were playing to last season. And as I say, central midfield could be their weakness. But my God, we're in for another team where it's going to be balls into the box to tall players and counterattacks. James, what's your confidence level going into this? Um, I mean, I, I think we're due for some... Look, <laughs> some finishing. I mean, I had some finishing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't mean it's going to happen, and you know, some of these things can persist for a while, unfortunately. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm I'm more intrigued as to how we line up. I think that's going to be fascinating. Um, relative to uh, Christie, is he have a place in the team? Um, is Forahashi going to start? And if he does where and in place of whom? Um, there's a case to be made that you could have Forahashi, it's striker, Christie on the left, uh, Forrest on the right. Um, you could have Christie replace Turnbull. You could have that as an iteration um, with Forahashi left and, and uh, Edward in the middle. So I think this is the first game where I think there's enough variability in in who's available where we might start to see some interesting decisions you know we we saw the bitone over welsh selection which was i think provided some information on um on Ange's decision making um i thought not playing christie was weird on saturday and and the selection of abada um, so I think we'll get more information on, uh, on Thursday, given the circumstances, you know, Dundee's a really bad team and we're playing them at home. So hopefully we could get away with almost any lineup on Saturday and, and, and pull that one out. <laughs> uh, famous last words. Um, I mean, I think Dundee are really, really bad, but, um, so, you know, I think that's what I'm most fascinated about. Alan's done a great job in summary. I've listened to a couple of podcasts, uh, other people that have scouted them. Alan sounds right in line. Um, if anything, they seem like they've been struggling in transition to this season relative to what they're like ELO railing ratings and they're standing last week. So maybe we're getting them at a good time. I mean, we thought that with Michelin and that didn't work out <laughs> real well. Um, so I, I, I'm, I, I think we should have enough to perform better to me, it's a question of, you know, taking our chances a little bit. And, um, you know, that, that's always the big question. I, I don't I don't see them, you know, killing us in dominating the game, as Alan said. I mean, we're going to have the ball most of the time. 
it's a question of whether we can stop their counters and some set pieces. Hello. It's like a night, you know, it's a nightmare uh, yeah. dream we're having over and over again. So, but if we can, if we can score, it would alleviate that, you know, a big, a bigly, <laughs> you know, if, <laughs> if, if, um, if the offside goal quote unquote was awarded as it should have been on Saturday, that would have changed that game probably. So, you know, I think we just need a little bit of uh, good fortune on finishing to maybe have that, re- that pressure valve released a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and have us calm down and maybe get a little bit of a boost in, in, in uh, confidence short term. So hopefully it happens Thursday. Yeah, let's hope so. Uh, that is us done for the Huddle Breakdown well over an hour at this point. So thank you to everyone who has listened. And again, if you're new to the channel, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or on Spotify, or you can get it every week on the YouTube. I'll be reacting on this channel to the Jablona game with former Celtic player Paddy McCourt tomorrow night. So stay tuned for that. Hopefully we get a win and hopefully we'll have some positives to talk about as well. Next week again, we'll be back again looking at this game and the Dundee game this weekend as well. So that's the huddle breakdown done. James, Alan, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Have a good week. All right. We'll chat to you later. Good luck.